Hello, my fellow CFL degenerates. Welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon. Excited to have you back for another week of football action on and off the field. We've got a full four-game slate to break down this week, including two rematches. And we'll have a look back at the Labor Day Classic games, which perhaps didn't quite live up to their moniker this year. Before that, I'll remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at KDrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, or by leaving a comment at firstlinepicks.com. Since two of our four games this week will be rematches of games from last week, we'll tweak the format a little bit here and start things off with a look at two teams coming off a bye week who will meet up in Montreal on Friday evening. The BC Lions take their 1-9 record on the road to face the 5-4 Alouettes, winners of two straight. BC is now into next year country, and the first of what I'm sure will be many dominoes to fall between now and the beginning of the offseason came down this past weekend with the firing of offensive line coach Brian Chu. Chu was one of the best in the business during his playing career, but he hasn't been able to get this much maligned group to improve their level of play as the season has gone on. How much of the problems lie with Chu directly isn't really something I'm qualified to properly answer, but it's hard to imagine this line's play really being any worse, so I think we can safely say that at a minimum he wasn't helping matters. Lions will turn to another former player in the form of Kelly Bates, who they hope can stop the bleeding for a group that has given the rest of the offense little chance of succeeding with how poor their play has been. The biggest news coming out of Alouette's camp during the bye week was the addition of wide receiver Chris Matthews, who was released by Winnipeg. This was a little surprising, and I suspect it might be revealed this week that somebody got banged up in the last game and will be moving to the injured list, or or else it would appear somebody has to move to the practice squad to make room for Matthews. Jake Wieneke or Quan Bray would be the likely candidate if, if someone had to move to the practice roster, but both those guys have done a pretty good job as rookies so far this season. B.J. Cunningham is probably done for a while yet with a broken wrist, but adding Matthews to complement Geno Lewis and Devere Posey is going to give the Owls a very potent receiving core, if indeed all those guys are healthy. Doesn't sound like Matthews is going to dress for this Friday's game, but presumably he'll be ready to roll in two weeks. Montreal has opened as seven-point favorites in this game, and we're sitting firm at 51.5 for the total. For as bad as things have gone for BC, they've actually fared reasonably well on the road, all things considered. The record says 1-5, but they absolutely blew two of those games with late fourth quarter collapses in Calgary and Hamilton, and they were right there at halftime in all the other games. So there's every reason to believe BC is going to at least hang around in this game, and this might not be all that bad of a spot for them. The Alouettes haven't been great at getting to the quarterback this year, so if there's a game where this offensive line might just be able to keep their heads above water, this is a good candidate. This Montreal defensive front has also remained vulnerable against the run for the most part, so if the Lions have any plans to institute a running game this week, I don't mind their chances of finding some success. John White got banged up in the last game and isn't going to be able to go for this one, but this creates an opportunity for Brandon Rutley or Wayne Moore to show what they can do in the backfield, and at 1-9 it's probably time to start making some evaluations with next season in mind, so potentially something positive could come from White's absence here. The opposite side of the coin is the Alouettes are going to have a lot of these same things breaking in their favor when their own offense is operating. Vernon Adams has had to make a lot of throws on the run this year, but he might not have to do as much of that against a Lions defensive line that's struggled to get home against opposing quarterbacks. 
BC is going to need to bring some more pressure from other areas if they want to be successful in limiting the damage in my estimation, and, and they're also going to need to deal with William Stanback's power run game, as the Owls star running back is expected to be back in the lineup this week. Keeping defenses off balance by calling an equal blend of run and pass on first down has been Kahari Jones's philosophy all year, and with Stanback and Johnson providing a strong duo in the backfield, there's every reason to believe the Owls will keep it along the ground and see if the Lions are able to stop it. The Lions' defense has actually been quietly effective defending the pass in recent weeks, so I, I think there's the possibility of them keeping a fairly potent offense under 25 points here, but that hinges on their ability to keep Stanback and Adams himself, for that matter, from running them over between the hash marks. Getting a full touchdown against a Montreal team that might have the momentum of two dramatic victories interrupted by an unfortunate third bye week is somewhat appealing in this game, but it's hard to escape the specter of a second-half collapse, which has followed the Lions around all season. Montreal has been just the opposite, showing a tendency to get stronger in the second half of football games throughout the year. And how much of this gets chalked up to coaching versus execution is open to debate, but whatever the case may be, there's no inherent reason to expect a reversal in fortunes at this point specifically. If this line was to move out past a single score number, I think that's probably the point where you're w willing to roll the dice on BC being able to get in under the number. Uh, but this line has been pretty firm at minus 7, so I'm, I'm not sensing a lot of market interest on either side right now. As a consequence of this trend, the area I'm looking at closely right now is the first half line. A lot of the time these first half lines don't become available until game day, but general rule of thumb is the first half spread is going to be slightly more than half of the game spread, so if the minus 7 holds for the full game, expect to see Montreal favor by 4 points on the first half line. Money line is available at a couple of books right now, uh, first half money line, and the lines are sitting at plus 180 at the moment, which isn't bad value in my books for a team that has either been leading, tied, or within a field goal at halftime in seven of their ten games played this season, including five out of six on the road. Montreal's only had a halftime lead in two out of their nine games, so there, there's definitely the tendency to start slower on their end. Having a look at the total... BC's volatility on offense scares me off on this one. We've seen them ride strong first halves to totals suggestive of the overhitting, and we've seen them lock down unders on their own with their inept offense. Both these teams have been on the quieter side when it comes to kick returns, so not a situation where I could recommend an overplay based on potential for big plays on special teams. I think this is a total where, yeah, as this kickoff approaches, maybe you sit back and, and see what the market does and see if this, this moves a couple points in either direction. But right now, I think it's it's pretty firmly in, in a no-man's land as, as far as making a play on it. All right, we'll look back at the Toronto-Hamilton matchup now before we spin into the Red Blacks-Argonauts preview for this week. Unfortunately for the Argonauts, uh, this game on Monday may as well have been a replay of their loss in Moncton two weeks ago as they, they once again built a sizable first half lead, only to let things completely unravel on them as the game wore on, eventually being outlasted by the Tiger Cats in a game that ended up landing right on the closing number of minus 11, and fortunately for us, sailed past the 51.5 total with relative ease. Toronto followed a familiar script in this game, getting marched on for a touchdown on the opening drive, giving up a pair of explosive passes to begin the game, and you've got to throw up your arms in frustration with this secondary, who routinely shows up late for football games and has their team chasing the game from the opening kickoff. 
But McLeod Bethel Thompson was able to punch right back in this one, hitting on a 96-yard strike to Darrell Walker on the Argos' first snap of the game. And after a litany of mistakes by the Tiger Cats offense, the Argos actually found themselves with a commanding 24-11 lead at halftime. But in spite of the points, this offense really had trouble sustaining drives and settling for field goals after Dane Evans' turnovers let Hamilton stay in touch and eventually bounce back. Toronto had the added bonus of Frankie Williams and Tunde Adelike both getting ejected from this game early, so Hamilton was playing significantly shorthanded in their secondary from the middle of the first quarter onwards. And in spite of this, the, the Argos really failed to do much damage through the air after two first-half majors, and not completing a single play of more than 18 yards in the last 35 minutes of this ball game just wasn't going to cut it for a team that passes the ball as much as Toronto does. James Wilder was back in the lineup, Brandon Burks getting moved to the sixth game, and regardless of the reputation Wilder may still have as a big-name player, this was a step backwards for the run game. The Argos were trying to keep, keep the run game involved in the early going, but the Hamilton defensive line came up with a couple of stuffs, including a couple on second and short that forced the punt team onto the field, and, and that was largely it for the run game for the afternoon. Obviously, this was a big showcase spot for Wilder in terms of the Argos finding a potential trade partner for him, um, and based on what I saw on Monday, it's, it's hard to imagine he'll, he'll command much, if any, interest on the trade market. Uh, and if, if that is the indeed uh, the direction Toronto decides to go, with, uh, with Burks out long term now, they may well just hold on to Wilder out of necessity. Uh, the biggest takeaway on the Hamilton side from this game, heading into their bye week, was the way Dane Evans was able to bounce back from a shaky first half, uh, turning in a nearly flawless second half that saw the Tiger Cats find the end zone three times. Toronto brought a lot of blitz pressure in the early going, and this was causing significant problems for Hamilton. Normally, this is one of the best offensive lines in the league, but they, they were getting flat-out beat by a Toronto defensive front that really stepped up with their best effort of the year. But they weren't able to maintain that push for the entire ball game, and they, they understandably ran out of gas by the fourth quarter after the secondary couldn't get them off the field on second down. I haven't seen a quarterback flat-out violate a secondary the way Evans did in that second half in, in quite some time. To attach some numbers to this, Hamilton dropped back to pass 43 times in this game and graded successful on 30 of those plays. That's awful for a defense to begin with, but factor in that the defensive line created six sacks, and, and you realize the secondary successfully defensed just seven out of 37 actual passing attempts. And this was a Hamilton passing game that's been pretty pedestrian since Evans took over for Jeremiah Masoli, but that second half was certainly the breakout performance for Evans that seemed to be on the verge of happening for a few weeks now. Some decent runs from Jackson Bennett in his first look in the Hamilton backfield. By and large, the run game didn't play a huge role in, in this outcome, though. Cameron Marshall joined fellow running backs Sean Thomas Erlington and Malik Irons on the six-game injured list before this game, as if Hamilton needed another running back to go down. The Ticats have, have done their job, though, heading into the more difficult back half of the schedule, running their record out to 9-2 and two now, uh, and holding a significant lead in the standings over second-place Montreal. This bye week looks to come at a good time for them as the injuries have really started to mount over the last three weeks and this should give them some time to heal up and hopefully get some guys back into the lineup. As for the Argonauts, they'll carry the burden of another crushing loss into a Saturday afternoon tussle with the Ottawa Red Blacks in the nation's capital.
The Argos are pretty much playing for pride at this stage, but the Red Blacks still have a glimmer of hope that a strong second half could see them push the Alouettes for the second playoff spot in the East, or hold off a Western crossover team should one of them fall apart down the stretch. Ottawa's decided to turn to Jonathan Jennings as their starting quarterback, a move that has been speculated about since Dominic Davis was yanked early in a disastrous loss to Saskatchewan two weeks back. Davis may yet be the long-term answer in Ottawa, but with the season circling the drain, I think Rick Campbell was pretty much forced to make this move. Ottawa came into this season aware that the potential for Davis to struggle in his first year as a starter was there, and Jennings was likely signed for this very reason. I've actually been mildly surprised by Jennings' halfway decent play in his limited appearances this season, considering he's been thrown into some pretty hopeless spots. I'm not sure I see him completely resurrecting his career here, but there's definitely an opportunity for him to get his name back into the conversation as far as being a guy teams at least want around. And he's a guy that's shown enough in this league that he might be able to carve out a journeyman career as a 1A, 1B type of guy. And if there's a defense you want to face right now and you're trying to kickstart an offense that is wallowed at the bottom of the league for nearly the entire season, this Toronto unit is, is the one. Jennings is going to have a healthy receiving core to throw to, something Ottawa hasn't been able to field very often this year. The Red Blacks really need some plays out of RJ Harris, Brad Sinopoli, and Dominic Rimes. This whole group has struggled to get open and struggled with drops when they do for a good portion of the season. And with a bye week and a full week of first team reps with Jennings at quarterback, there's no excuse for them not to deliver a performance a whole lot better than what they've given lately against a defense that's been equally futile in their ability to come up big when called upon. I would expect Toronto tries to lean on their defensive line again in this game. They were effective enough on Monday against a strong opposing line, and I think you have to roll the dice on the blitz getting home often enough to keep Jennings from getting into a rhythm because dropping bodies into coverage and playing to defense balls in the air hasn't worked at all. The Red Blacks' ability to run against the Blitz is going to be very important here. They haven't been effective along the ground in terms of yardage this season in, in any games where John Crockett hasn't been the feature back, so I, I wouldn't hold my breath here, but if Jennings can effectively identify Blitzes at the line, the, the hope would be that he can at least direct these guys into some holes and, and whoever the Red Blacks have healthy enough to hand the ball to is, is able to make some plays. Word out of Ottawa camp would suggest that Moses Madu is probably going to be the feature back in this one, but John Crockett can't, can't be ruled out completely yet. He has been at practice and isn't officially listed, listed on the injured list right now, so uh, that's something to keep an eye on as, as game day approaches and the roster gets released. I don't think Toronto's game plan on offense is really any great mystery here. Uh, they're going to come out throwing, and why wouldn't you with the success you've had doing so in recent weeks? But they, they've got to find a way to sustain that as the game moves along and the defense starts to make adjustments. This is an Ottawa secondary that's still playing without Jonathan Rose and Corey Tyndall, and while they've generally kept their heads above water in recent weeks, the Argos still have the personnel to move the ball against them. The question is whether Toronto can be creative enough and unpredictable enough to sustain success through the air, given that their running game projects to be not much of a factor in this game. Ottawa's play on the defensive side has been uh, pretty sound this year, uh, you know, as far as the defensive line is concerned, you know, at least compared to the secondary that's been playing behind them. So I'm not anticipating James Wilder suddenly springing to life on Saturday afternoon. The line for this game opened with the home side favored by 5 points and a total of 51.5. Now 
Now, if you told me Ottawa was going to be favored by more than a field goal in any more games this year, I'd have been quite surprised, but I actually think this number is an accurate reflection of the general market disgust with the way the Argonauts have carried themselves in second halves of these past two games with their season slipping down the drain. This team's done way too many good things throughout the course of the year to be sporting a 1-9 record, but it seems game in and game out, at, at least one area of the field finds a way to completely collapse to the point that all the good things are washed away. And this coaching staff just can't ever seem to get everyone on the same page. And at 1-9, and nine, it's, it's doubtful the resolve still exists to do so this year. At a glance, this offense has way too much explosive potential for the Argos to find themselves as five-point dogs against an offense that has been historically bad for the better part of the last eight weeks. But it's hard to look past the very real likelihood of Ottawa doing enough smart things and being efficient enough in their approach to keep pace with the Argos and wait for them to blow their own foot off in the second half of the ball game. As mentioned, it sounds like John Crockett's at least a possibility for Ottawa, although he didn't make it past the second quarter last time out. So, so how healthy he really is, uh, you know, isn't going to be known with any certainty, even if he is in the lineup here. I'd probably wait on this line for the time being, as it hasn't really shown any signs of significant movement, and and see what the lineups look like when they're they're announced on Friday. You know, the surprise injury announcements have been a problem this season for whatever reason. So if there's an opportunity to wait for more information before making a play, I think it's wise to take advantage. I'd be less hesitant when it comes to the total, though. While the over has been a a bit of a scary proposition in games involving Ottawa this season, I, I dare say it's almost an automatic play with Toronto on the field at this particular moment. Outside of the play of the defensive line, there there was nothing positive on that side of the ball on Monday, and, and I think with two weeks to get ready with, with a game plan specific to Jonathan Jennings, the, the Red Blacks are going to move the ball with, with relative ease against the secondary, as just about everyone else has up to this point. On the other side of the ball, McLeod Bethel-Thompson has been good for over 25 points per game in his last four starts, and that's arguably come against stronger defenses than Ottawa is going to throw on the field on Saturday. I think both teams probably hit 25 in this game, and as long as the weather doesn't play a significant role, the over is a pretty straightforward play. The annual Banjo Bowl will take center stage on Saturday afternoon, the middle game of a rare CFL triple header. The Blue Bombers will be hoping to rebound from what can almost be called their annual Labor Day loss, but they'll be back home in the friendly confines of Investors Group Field, where they have yet to lose a game this season. The game on Sunday unfolded largely how I think a lot of us expected it to early on. Saskatchewan came out looking for blood. Uh, They had a 10-0 lead by the end of the first quarter, although they they certainly could have led by more than that after a brutal start by the Winnipeg offense set the Riders up with great field position throughout the first half. Uh, But Saskatchewan wasn't able to strike the blow that really put Winnipeg away like we've seen happen on, on Labor Days in the past. And what I would dub a surprisingly bad outing from the Riders coaching staff left this game in doubt at the, the end of the first half, and the Riders never really woke up again until there was two minutes left in the ball game and they were staring down a loss. Coach Dickinson burned his challenge very early on on a play that really didn't seem to have much hope of being overturned. Uh, you know, in an offense that's thrived this year by establishing the run game, strangely made practically no effort to do so in the entire game. First down play selection saw the Riders call a season-high 79% designed pass plays while also calling for passes on multiple second and shorts. And this struck me as especially odd considering they were playing with the lead for almost the entire ball game. 
The Riders, in fact, did not attempt one single run in the second half until their very last possession, practically unheard of for this offense, so definitely a puzzling game plan, and it resulted in this game ending up a, a lot closer than it looked like it was going to be based on, on how it started. Where the Riders did manage to excel for a time being was in second and long situations, which at one point in the first half they managed to convert on six times out of seven. In the end, it was this repeated inability of the Winnipeg defense to get themselves off the field when they had the chance that ended up costing them the game. It didn't necessarily translate into points for Saskatchewan, but it, it meant that Chris Streveler and the Bombers' offense were perpetually dealing with long fields, and eventually they came up a day late and a dollar short on the scoreboard. The Riders converted second downs at a 68% success rate, despite needing eight or more to gain on 65% of those snaps, uh, which is a significant outlier statistically and, and in a bad way for Winnipeg. I felt this was the first game this year where Cody Fajardo really looked a little uncomfortable and was maybe trying to do too much early on, and it was leading to mistakes, including an interception and a sack that both took points off the board in the first quarter. Winnipeg did a good job of flushing him out of the pocket while also preventing him from beating them with his legs as Fajardo only had a single successful scramble in the entire game. I can't really say Winnipeg stopped the run because Saskatchewan actually graded 6 out of 10 successful with 4 runs over 10 yards, but evidently the Riders respected the ability of the Bombers defensive line enough that they, they weren't interested in testing them with Powell or Thigpen until the last drive of the game. While this was an altogether passable performance from the Bombers' defense, they, they ultimately crumbled on the final drive of the game, and if, if you're Richie Hall, you, you can't let that happen in a game of this magnitude. Not when you're one stop away with walking away with a win in the, the one game where you just can't ever seem to get over. So what's likely to be different in this week's matchup? Well, for starters, the venue and the crowd. Mosaic Stadium on Labor Day and Investors Group Field in, in this game have become the two most raucous stadiums in the league since they opened a few years ago, and, and these are two of the few games per season where I, I feel the crowd can have a legitimate impact on the game. I don't think anyone would really argue that the calls we saw on Sunday generally broke the way of the riders, and, and now you turn around and it's going to be the exact same environment again this week, except this time you're expecting Winnipeg to probably get a couple of those breaks. The sheer volume generated by the crowd also makes it difficult for players on the opposing offense to hear the snap count down on the field or change any plays at the line, so that, that's another advantage to the home side that just doesn't into, come into play very often anymore. Naturally, we can see this reflected in the line, which, which is opened with the Bombers' favor by a single point. Saskatchewan closed around minus 5.5 last week, and the game proved to be close, so home field is being valued at, at nearly a touchdown here, which, which is significant compared to other back-to-back -back situations this year that tended to see an adjustment of about a, about a field goal game to game. This start will be number three for Chris Streveler, and, and if he was playing with house money in the first two, which came on the road in hostile environments, the pressure is probably on now, with Winnipeg in need of a win to retain their hold on first place in the division. Saskatchewan did a much better job of containing Streveler as a runner than the Eskimos defense did two weeks ago, though it's worth noting that he did move a step forward as a passer game over game, which is an encouraging sign considering Andrew Harris's absence pushed the Bombers towards a more pass-oriented attack. Harris will sit this one out as well, serving the second of his two-game suspension. Johnny Augustine had a decent game as the primary back, busting off a 156-yard run that led to a touchdown. He, he was really hit and miss, though. The Riders stuffed Winnipeg on eight runs in this game, and it forced the Bombers into a high percentage of second-and-long situations, which they're not used to operating in. 
If I'm Winnipeg, I'm trying to find a way to get Nick Dembski more involved this week. I had him projected for a lot more than two touches on Sunday. Winnipeg likes to spread the ball around, but uh, I'd also be looking for a bigger game out of Darvin Adams as well. He only had one catch in his first game back from a long-term injury, which isn't too surprising, but in game number two, he should be back up to speed. If Adams isn't able to find some seams and force the riders to give him more attention, they're, they're again going to have a relative difficulty. Uh, Winnipeg is converting on screens and hitches that they love to run, as, as the riders can cheat personnel closer to the line of scrimmage with, without fear of being exposed downfield. For the riders, it's going to be interesting to see if they make a return to a more run-based offense heading out on the road. In terms of pure efficiency, this offense is number one in the league, slightly ahead of Hamilton and Edmonton, but this is going to be... Their first true test on the road in a difficult environment. Up until now, they've made a lot of hay against Toronto, Ottawa, and BC. The tough defenses they faced have generally limited this offense, and they've limited them through the air more specifically. Interestingly, the run game hasn't really followed a set pattern in terms of efficiency based on opponent. Toronto, of all teams, is the one opponent who really stuffed the run against Saskatchewan so far this year. You'd have to think Saskatchewan will be looking to get William Powell more involved in this game to try and back off the pressure, if nothing else. But offensive coordinator Steve McAdoo has never really been a guy I've fully trusted to make the adjustments that would seem obvious from a distance. I don't expect the Bombers to change a whole lot on defense to start this game. Richie Hall's been predictable in playing you know, fairly conservative zone defenses and hoping his defensive line can force a mistake before the other team's make their way down the field to the end zone. The pockets and coverage are going to be there for Cody Fajardo if he's able to find them, but the Riders need to force the Bombers' defensive line to respect the run game. Willie Jefferson and Drake Nevis just aren't guys an offensive line can easily block if they're able to pin their ears back and beeline it to the quarterback. For the most part, the willingness to concede yardage and stiffen up around the 30-yard line has worked out for the Bombers this year, but it did put their offense behind the eight ball with bad starting field position for most of the afternoon on Sunday. If they fall behind in this game, I, I think we might see them get a little more aggressive on defense and try to swing field position with some two and outs. The style of offense the Bombers run isn't as effective when they trail in football games, and it's critical to avoid falling into a two-score deficit in the first half again. We haven't seen them take many shots downfield with Streveler like they were under Nichols, obviously with the idea of not turning the ball over, but back at home and with Streveler now in his third straight start, I, I think they need to come out and try to be the bully in this one and land the first shot. There's some guys on the Saskatchewan defensive unit that run hot, and trying to get a guy like Nick Marshall riled up early on with that crowd behind them is, is something I'd be thinking about if I'm Paul Lapolis drawing up the first two drives for this week's game. On the surface, I do like the Bombers as marginal favorites in this one. The Banjo Bowl is usually a lot more of a toss-up than Labor Day with the all-time series fairly even, but Winnipeg has won three of the last four in fairly convincing fashion. Saskatchewan hasn't shown the ability yet to step up with a strong performance on the road besides one game against the Lions a few weeks ago, and that lack of trust I have with Steve McAdoo offenses that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, those are probably the two biggest reasons I'd avoid Saskatchewan here. On a pure talent level, I'm, I'm taking Fajardo over Strevler if given the option, but I have a lot more faith in Paul Lapolis getting the most out of his personnel uh, than I do Steve McAdoo putting his offense in the best position to succeed. The biggest hang-up here, though, is, is the news on Wednesday that Nick Dembski and Lucky Whitehead were both absent from Bombers practice. 
one of those guys being out would be a significant loss. Both of them being out would be crippling to this offense with the way they like to operate. The early action seems to be slightly on the side of Winnipeg. We're seeing some minus one and a half start to appear while the totals remain flat at 48. But I wouldn't touch any of those numbers until the status of, of these guys is known. If Saskatchewan doesn't have to worry about getting burned on the flat by Whitehead's speed, that's going to change how aggressively they can bring pressure off the edge. Not a loss the Bombers can easily afford to deal with on, on this side of the ball. And in spite of the fairly modest numbers Whitehead's been posting lately, Mike O'Shea stated that he, he won't rule either player out until the last possible moment. So we, we won't know for sure until till the rosters are released. But uh, this this isn't a promising outlook for Winnipeg. Who could only afford to lose so many bodies, you would think. For the second straight week, the Eskimos and Stampeders will close things out, and for the eighth time in as many years, it's Calgary who has claimed victory in the opening set of the traditional home-and-home series. In spite of the Stampeders' dominating victory on Monday, the Eskimos opened as a one-point favorite for this one. Given their first two showings against Calgary and their abysmal track record against the Stamps in general under Jason Moss, I'm a little surprised to see the market moving in their direction, and we're actually now seeing some Edmonton minus two and a halfs populating the board now. As for what we saw on the field on Monday, the answer in regard to Edmonton's offense was not much. I had concerns about this offense's ability to put up points on the road coming into this game, and they delivered their weakest effort of the season, failing to find the end zone entirely on a day where the offense was far too conservative to do anything besides rack up five-yard gains that were of little help at the end of the day. Calgary came into this game looking like the more prepared team, and that really shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's tracked these respective coaching staffs in recent years. The Stamps had two weeks to prepare coming in and Edmonton returning to the same timid play calling that led to their demise in the first meeting of the year between these teams was never going to get the job done. This Edmonton offense has generally been effective in stretching the field the rare times they've done it this year, but once again they seem scared to attempt anything more than 10 yards downfield and it didn't take the Stampeders coverage unit long to start cheating underneath and jumping the short passing routes that Trevor Harris has lived and died by this season. I thought Edmonton's offensive line probably had uh, their worst showing of the year. And while they weren't outright bad, Harris faced a lot more pressure than he's used to dealing with. He looked hurried on a lot of his throws and wasn't doing a great job of going through his progressions on, on a day that was all around poor in pretty much every area. C.J. Gable was stuffed for the second straight game and his pattern of disappearing against good defenses was once again on display. This is a personnel decision by Coach Moss that continues to be questionable in my eyes. Gable is simply given the Eskimos nothing a replacement-level running back couldn't provide, basically getting fed his lunch in the four games against the Bombers and Stampeders, and I definitely wonder what the reluctance is to give Shaq Cooper another look. He's been on the practice roster for the bulk of the season, but did look good in his limited viewings. A couple of fumbles in the one game where he replaced an injured Gable might be playing a role in Moss's hesitation to give him a shot, but at this point a personnel change certainly appears warranted. But as bad as the offense looked on Monday, I think you've got to be more surprised and potentially alarmed from an Eskimo perspective at, at how toothless this defense is suddenly looking after a great first two months of the season. We see this somewhat regularly in the CFL, and, and that's a defense that for whatever reason just comes into the season with a leg up on everyone and looks unbeatable in July and August before fading in the second half of the season, and, and that's what appears to be happening with this unit. 
This was Bo Levi Mitchell's first game back after a long layoff, and the Stampeders clearly did their homework in regards to keeping him protected against a defensive line that's racked up sacks like no other up to this point. The lack of pressure the Eskimos were able to generate was almost shocking in terms of how little there was, and I'm not sure there's been a game all year where a quarterback faced as little harassment as Bo did in this one. You could see the work in film study paying off early and often for the Calgary quarterback, who was able to get rid of the ball almost instantly any time the Eskimos brought more than four-man pressure, and he seemed to know exactly where the soft spots in the zone were going to be. Mitchell completed seven passes in this game for between 15 and 17 yards, and, and that was no accident, as every one of those passes found a man with a nice three-yard cushion in every direction. The few times the Edmonton defensive line did get into the backfield, he was able to step up in the pocket and get rid of the ball before any damage could be done. In spite of all that, arguably the biggest key for this Stampeders offense was the jolt that Kadeem Carey provided to the running game. We knew last week that Carey was potentially going to play and to keep an eye on his status, and I know when he was ruled in it definitely made Calgary more attractive at the minus three they were laying on game day. Carey did not disappoint in his return, carving up a defense that had kept just about everyone in check in the first half of the season. When the dust settled, this was probably the best rushing performance we've seen from a team all season, with the Stamps grading out at a ridiculous 79% success rate on a season-high 24 rushing attempts, with a handful of those picking up over 15 yards. Even late in the game, where everyone in the stadium knew the ball was going to carry to run down the clock, the defense still had no answer, and... If this guy can finally manage to keep himself healthy, this Stampeder offense is going to be very difficult to deal with for the rest of the season. As mentioned off the top, Calgary's owned Labor Day for well over a decade now, but unlike the Bombers-Riders series where the home team tends to rebound in the rematch, the Stampeders have also dominated the second leg of this rivalry for quite a long time. So the mere fact that a change in venue is occurring is significantly less of a factor in this game as far as I'm concerned. The one area where it does appear to help Edmonton is that their offensive philosophy has been a lot more assertive at Commonwealth Stadium this year. They've put together a success rate of close to 60% when playing at home, though the red zone sputtering has been a problem there as well, and, and huge amounts of yards have only translated into average amounts of points. There's also the strength of schedule considerations. The, the home schedule for Edmonton so far has featured Toronto, BC, Ottawa, and Montreal with Pipkin at quarterback for most of the game, and most recently Winnipeg with Streveler. So there's been some pretty ideal situations here where, where it hasn't exactly been hard to look good. Overall, I, I don't think I've seen enough from Edmonton in the five games they've played against tough opponents this year, all losses now. Uh, to believe that they can walk out onto the field on Saturday night and find a way to beat an opponent who completely controlled both sides of the ball less than a week ago. If there was a chance of catching Bo Levi rusty, it was on Monday, so that opportunity's already been missed. And with the way this Stampeders offensive line just owned the line of scrimmage against an opponent that's been terrorizing backfields as a matter of routine, it would make me very leery of trusting that Edmonton's going to be able to win this game on the strength of their defense, which had always been their trump card in the first portion of the season. Opposing coordinators have found the soft spots in this defense now, and, and Philip Lowley is, is under some pressure here to come up with an answer. Money Hunter was victimized repeatedly on Monday. Calgary clearly found a matchup they liked there. And while Taekwon Glass did find his way back into the lineup, as I you know, suggested that, that he probably should going into this game, uh, it, it was an, unfortunately in relief of Arjun Kolkun, who was placed on the sixth game. 
We saw Edmonton cope very well with a rash of early injuries on defense, uh, but the influx of bodies in recent weeks hasn't proven to be much of an upgrade. Uh, and if I had to single one guy out on this unit that they really need more out of down the stretch, I'd be looking at middle linebacker Larry Dean, who's missed way too many tackles this year at a position where that simply can't be happening if you want to remain successful. It's ironic that Dean was a big free agent signing this past winter, but his opposite number on the Calgary side, Corey Greenwood, promoted from special teams to fill the void left by Alex Singleton there, has is, is proven to be one of the surprise breakout performers of the year at a, at a key position. There is some credence to the idea that we're going to see the Eskimos' best effort here and, and Calgary maybe relaxes a little bit, having clinched the season series tiebreaker already. If Edmonton drops this game and falls to 6-6, six and six, I think you can probably pencil them into fourth place in the West with a high degree of confidence. So as far as the playoff race goes, this is a make-or-break game for them. On the Calgary side, the situation isn't as dire as far as hanging in the race for a home playoff date, but a loss would definitely be a setback to their chances of winning the division. For me, this just isn't a team I'm willing to bet against when they smell blood and have a chance to bury Edmonton in the standings. I'm not sure there's really any number I'd feel confident backing the struggling Eskimos at right now, and the prospect of actually laying two or three points to back them isn't a road I'm willing to go down with their track record in must-win football games. You've got to respect market opinion when it's moving a line in the opposite direction to what you were expecting, but if this line indeed makes it out to a full field goal, which is the direction it's heading, I don't think you can pass up Calgary getting those points. Not with the difference that Kadeem Carey is making for that offense. Carey's had three games this season where he's had 10 or more rushes. Calgary's point differential is plus 53 in those three games. That's a tough stat to ignore. If Edmonton doesn't make significant adjustments on, on both sides of the football, it, it's going to be another ugly result. Uh, at this point, unless they're able to come out ahead in the turnover battle, uh, which they haven't done a lot of this year, uh, you've got to view Calgary as the, as the safer side, uh, you know, even heading into a hostile environment. The total in this game is seen under action so far, pushing it down to 47. Uh, Third time these teams have played in a pretty short window of time, and you know, not surprisingly, the, the total's been bet right into this same window in all three of those games. I'm not seeing value on either side of the number right now, but if pressed, I'd actually lean towards the over here. I mentioned last week that Labor Day is you know, typically lower scoring, and, and true to form, the, the under cashed easily on Monday. The rematch with its short turnaround and limited prep time lends itself to more mistakes and missed assignments, which generally creates a higher scoring environment, as, as last year's 48-42 final score can attest to. So if uh, if I had to choose one or the other, I'm, I'm probably going over in this one. As far as identifying a best bet available right now, I'm willing to ride the Argonauts' disaster of a defense and gunslinging offensive mentality and, and try my luck at hitting the over for a second consecutive week in their game. If, if there's any cure out there for the Red Blacks' ailing offense, uh, this game is it. So we'll, we'll go Argos' Red Blacks over 51 and a half. So that will bring down the curtain on what I hope was another informative edition of Third Down Gamble. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and remember to look me up on Twitter at kdrive88, or pay a visit to firstlinepicks.com and feel free to send in any questions, concerns, or feedback you may have. I look forward to hearing from you. 
Big Saturday triple header for us. Let's make it a profitable one. Good luck, and we'll see you next week.